Okay, here we go. Here we go. Nice to be back with you. Um, we are going to try to go next week. Let me, I get all these little things bouncing around in my head, but we'll try to go next week, even though it's Palm Sunday and there'll be a blow up. But even if we go half an hour, um, that'll be fun. I just, I so regret these Sundays when we miss. Uh, one thing about the new place will be we'll rarely have to miss, if at all. So uh, that'll, be, that'll be a nice thing. Let's pray and then let's chatter just a little bit. Um, fifth Sunday in Lent. Christ says, for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be consecrated in truth. John seventeen nineteen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, who in your Son has given to us a pioneer of salvation and made him the true and eternal priest and mediator of his people, grant, we beg you, that we hold fast to him in love, learn obedience in his discipleship, and so be brought into the heavenly sanctuary through him, who lives and reigns with thee and the Holy Ghost, ever one God, world without end. Amen. Okay, thanks to so many people who are helping me out. Uh, I, get, I, get the, I, I mean that in a serious way. It's always good when this comes because I forget to do this. We pass these around. I think these are identical. Yeah, one each way. And then uh, uh, give early and often. Where are we sending this again? Where do we give this? Ghana and Westfield House, they both could use some help. Um, Ghana remaining remarkably stable in the midst of an Africa, which is just uh, going berserk, so that's good. Anybody need uh, an outline? Everybody okay? All right. A um, couple of things. Uh, there is going to be incense next week at 11.15 at Easter Vigil and at the late service on Easter. Did I say that right? It is in the bulletin, but it's not in the schedule. A couple people were asking today. It is in there on the back of the last page. We'll put it on the schedule for next week, I hope. Um, so if you're, you know, if you're sensitive to that, then uh, please uh, you know, come to a different service. Don't avoid us altogether. Next thing, um, your pastors are going to cave in. Um, for two or three years now, people have been asking uh, why we don't establish hours for private confession. And, you know, this is always one of those things. Um, I can already hear what the response will be when I run the announcement next week. I mean, I can hear it in my head already. I know what's coming. On the other hand, you know, part of it is you have to always try to judge where, the, where a congregation is. And um, We now have enough people on a regular... I mean, there are people who come to private confession weekly, which is... Uh, you know, a nice thing. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good gift, and um, it's out of our experience a little bit. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to introduce it in the way that we've introduced it to the eighth grade um, confirmation kids, okay? It, with a little bit of a twist, but um, three to five? All right, Holy Week. Um, I'll write this up for next week, but I'm sort of telling you because you're sort of a rarefied crowd, and if you have questions, this would be a great time to ask, and you can tell other people. Holy Week, there'll be a pastor at the altar from 3 to 5, Monday through, we're going to go all the way Friday? We're going to go Saturday, too? All right, Monday through Saturday. Um, now, can we go Saturday with all the Easter? Let's go just go Monday through Friday because we have a lot to prepare for in the vigil day. Uh, all right, Monday through Friday, there'll be a pastor at the altar. There'll be a pastor um, 
who will probably be seated here, or may kneel next to you, we'll see. We, um, but a pastor's job is to be at your ear, uh, and what you need to be doing is, is sorting it out with the Lord. The pastor just helps you do that. So there'll be a pastor seated here. Um, and you can come and kneel here and confess. There'll be uh, a small fire burning here. And um, when, we, when we teach the eighth grade kids to come, there's a couple things we don't want to do. We don't have some of these issues with you, but we never want to be alone with kids. So we always put kids, six kids in the back, and they come one at a time if they want to. So we never want to be alone with them. There's always somebody here. Nobody ever comes by force. You know, kids in confirmation class say, hey, I don't want to come. We're completely fine with that. And we actually don't permit them uh, to speak of specific sins in the eighth grade uh, because we don't want parents saying, you know, you jimmied my kid into this, and now you're probing them. Because a pastor doesn't probe. That's not what we do at confession. We simply do what Jesus told us to do, which is forgive sins. So if you've got sins that you want some forgiven, you want to chatter about, that's fine. So here's what we'll do. Um, if you will come uh, and just sit in the back, uh, we're going to kind of take a mid-step between you, you know, spilling everything out if that's uncomfortable for you. And frankly, for many of you, if you've never been to confession, it will be probably uncomfortable. It's the woman from two weeks ago who's uncomfortable with having Jesus know everything she ever did. Oof. Once you get used to that, it's good. When you know that people still love you after they know everything you ever did, that's, you know, that's a good thing. So here's what we'll do. Um, we'll come through the back door. Uh, there'll be pencil and paper for you to sort of um, examine yourself the way Luther tells you to do in the catechism and write things down that really bother you. Um, this is a normal exercise. Some people do it in their heads. Some people bring paper to confession. It's all right either way. But what we'd like to do is you come in the back door, you sit down, you write your sins down uh, that you'd like to confess. You come to the altar sort of one at a time. And we're not going to usher you up. We're not going to make room. If somebody's up here, just stay back. If nobody's up there, please come forward. Um, you can kneel down. And confession goes sort of right through. And there's a place where you can say what troubles me particularly is um, you don't need to say anything there. You can just go through the confession and keep going. You don't need to say anything. But it also allows you to... If you don't want to speak your sins out loud, simply take what you've written down on the piece of paper and toss it in the fire. Um, fire purifies. Okay? There'll be a little incense on the fire. Prayers rise into heaven that smells good, Revelation 5, 8. So really this is, um, you know, my wife, I don't even know if she's here right now, but, the, you know, there's, she, she remembers the story at Valpo when um, Dean Nagel on Good Friday absolved people individually at the rail by putting his hands on their heads. She said it was as if he, as if he put his hands into my head and drew every sin out. And so, um, you know, and what we found with the eighth grade kids is they're very eager to come back. Um, Gainig's famous statement to them is, you want to hear Jesus talk? Yeah, they all want to hear Jesus talk. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll write it out for you. I'm just sort of just putting it out there. Um, there's nothing by force. We're not going to make a big deal out of it. We're not telling everybody you've got to come. If you want to come, you're more than welcome. If you're used to coming, you who, who regularly come and speak, um, you'll be able to speak quietly up here to the pastor, and people in the back won't know what's cooking, and that's all good, too. I'd like to get to the point in the congregation where we began by hearing... Um, confession in our studies. That's not the best. You really should be at the altar. 
we've sort of over the last year begun to move to the altar as people became more comfortable with the idea that they were here and less worried about the fact that people will see them. This isn't a good place to hear confession because there's so many ways in and people who interrupt feel embarrassed and people who interrupt feel embarrassed. What's kind of happened over the last year is more and more people have been moving to the altar and if somebody opens a door, it doesn't make that big a deal. It's just normal work of the church. If, if you walked in and somebody was saying, Jesus really loves you, you'd say, well, that's what's going on at the church. That's what's happening at private confession too. So if you want to come, uh, you're more than willing. If you don't want to come, that's fine. Uh, if you've never come, don't be scared. You know, uh, If you come all the time, come for your normal thing. Um, we're just trying to uh, make that a comfortable thing. Did I forget anything? Questions about any of that? Yes, please. Because it's all over the Bible, and um, it is... Uh, you remember in... Uh, in Deuteronomy, there's a mixture. There's a mixture that you can only uh, smell in the church, and if you make it at home, the penalty is death. Now, why such a severe penalty? Because church is supposed to engage all your senses. Because the Lord even redeems your nose and your eyes, and the church is supposed to have a smell. In Russia, when you walk into a church, as soon as you walk in, you you know you're in church. You know you're there. So it's another way to remind you you're in church. There's going to be some days when your ears don't work, you can't hear anything. If pastors say something stupid, you'll still be able to smell Jesus. There's some days when your eyes won't work, but you'll still be able to smell. It's just it's an engagement of the whole person. So it's just it's just what happens in the Bible. It was always appointed at all the all the services. You burned the incense. I mean, it was one of the things that pastors did. And really, it only dropped out because, uh, in typical Lutheran fashion, we said that's too Catholic, which is just like too stupid for words, to be honest with you. I mean, I mean, it just is, you know, if, you, if you're constituted by your hatreds, you know, there's, you know, that just is, it's almost impossible. So I'm not saying that about you. I'm saying that about us. No, no, yeah, so that's where it comes from. It's, it's a law rather than gospel. Well, it couldn't possibly be a law. We hardly ever do it. <laughs> I mean, your, your reference in the Bible where it's all over. And, and well, no, it's a gift. Well, you could say you could say this. No, uh, yeah. I taught for a whole. If you mix it at home, you die. That's law. That's not If you take the holy supper and you don't know what's doing, it kills you. That's law. So you remember long ago, far away. These are the okay two things. Everything could be said two ways: incense and the holy supper. Even Jesus. If you don't have him with a lily, he kills you with a sword. And two, um, I taught for a whole year in this class on Leviticus's gospel. So uh, Leviticus is pure gospel. Here's what, here's what happened in Leviticus. You're a damn sinner, Bruce. And then the Lord says, Whoa, I love you so much. I'm going to provide the means to save you. I'll meet you every morning and every night. And then he gives you all sorts of things like, depending on if you hit your thumb with a hammer and said damn, or if you, uh, you know, cheated the bank out of your mortgage, and there's sort of a range of things you can do to make sure that you're comfortable, that you're forgiven. And that's what Leviticus is all about. So, yeah, it can be a law, but here I... We're so reticent about using it. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think it is. It's not by force. I mean, we hardly we don't use incense six times a year in the normal services. But it's actually a good question. Anything else? Just questions about that? If you haven't come before, it will be. It should be a comfortable time because there should be a lot of people around, and life will be, I hope, good for you. All right. So um, incense, private confession. Um, I got one more thing, but I'll hold it for just a little bit, okay? All right, here you go. Um, back to beauty, eh? Um, here you go. 
I'm not going to reference this too much because there are other things I want to chatter about. But Genesis 1 is a beautiful place. I mean, you won't. I wonder if when you go to heaven, your first, your first instinct will be, this is so beautiful. I mean, it will engage every sense of yours. It will overwhelm everything. And I wonder, I wonder if there's oxygen mass there for the first people as you come in. <laughs> I can't take this much beauty. <laughs> I wonder if it'll be like that. It'll be more than you can stand, okay? Because that's how Eden was. Genesis 1, he creates, and then there's beauty, and there's more beauty, and there's more. Let there be light, and there's light. And let there be fish and fowl, and there are. And let there be man. And you can, you can only just imagine how Adam felt the first time he saw Eve. You can only just imagine that. You can only imagine how... Adam felt the first time he saw God face to face. You can only, it is, it is impossible, you know, it's impossible for us to, so Genesis 1, the Holy Spirit, I'm sorry, the Holy Trinity speaks creation into being and gives matter its form, okay? So he takes, he makes matter, remember? And then he forms it. This will be a bird, that'll be a plant, and this will be a man. He scoops him up out of the dust, breathes into him, so he gives matter this form, and the form and I don't mean anything too deeply philosophical. I simply mean the shape that it takes is beautiful. I'm, I'm always struck by how people come on Sunday morning here in all varieties of sort of bent overness and their back hurts and I got a cane and I'm pushing that and this. And, you know, um, all those forms will, will be restored to their, their initial beauty. It'll be just a fantastic thing. And you remember Genesis 131. It was very good. And among the very goodness of it was that it was beautiful, right? So the beauty of creation is that it's the work of the creator. God makes this spectacularly wonderful, and he infuses it with all, all, his, all his goodness. It's just, you know, it's many other things, but among the things it is, is beautiful. And that's part of the reason, then, that the fall is such a wretched thing. I mean, I don't know, um, I've been thinking a lot about my Monday Thursday sermon. I think I'm going to, I've been thinking a lot about betrayal, um, and you, you think about what a betrayal it must have been for the Lord to not be able to find Adam in the garden. And you, you, feel, you think about how the Lord must have felt about that. Um, and how, um, how sin uh, was so unbeautiful. How, I don't know if you've, you've seen, um, you know, beautiful things ruined. You drop a, a, a vase. You, occasionally when people steal paintings from museums, they slash them in ways out of the, out of the, uh, uh, out of the frame that they can't be restored. The Pieta in um, Rome, you know, smashed by the hammer. And now you can only observe its beauty at St. Peter's from behind the glass it used to be that you could, you know, move close and even. Um, I can remember in the Louvre once when I was very young and stupid, um, um, I leaned over to point at a corner, something in the corner of a Van Gogh, and uh, then I met the gendarmes. <laughs> uh, because it was all, you know, all electronically, you know. So, um, you know, the, the great fear of ruining what's beautiful, but what happens in Genesis 3 is that things fall apart, and there becomes this gap between creation and creator, and this divide um, really separates us from our giver. And here's the thing, when we turn away from life, we're diminished. And so, you know, we are, we're deformed, actually, in some way, we're, we're deformed, you wonder why you suffer physically, you're deformed. You wonder why your soul hurts, it's, it's mangled. You know, we just, well, res, part of resurrection, body, soul, and spirit. I believe in the, 
in the resurrection of the body, what we believe in is the restoration to beauty, among other things. Now here's the thing, and I, you know, you can spin your Bible open to Genesis 3.15 if you want or not, but you know this already, that already in Genesis 3.15, this is called the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, right in the midst of his great disappointment. This is where love is, you know, brilliant beyond what you can bear. Right in the midst of his great disappointment, the, the father promises a son in flesh and blood, a remarkable fix, in flesh and blood that will come to save us. And now you should begin to remember, see, things are going to start to come together now. This Noam, which is the word for beauty, you remember? Noam, the word for beauty in the Old Testament, is the word for a bodily presence, an incarnational presence, a God presence that's tangible. You can feel it, you can touch it, you can smell it, you can see it. Okay, so I just, I just, I'm just suggesting to you that what happens in Genesis 3.15 is that uh, the Lord is providing already a beautiful solution to, a, to, a, to a, a deformation that we cannot even, you know, begin to describe. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between her seed and your seed. He's talking to Satan. He's going to recreate the gap. What happened is, is we were like this with God, um, and then Satan over here. And then we close the gap with Satan. We open the gap with God. And then God closes the gap again. I'm going to close the gap. Right now there's a gap between me and Adam. No, no. When the, when the new Adam comes, there'll be a gap between you and Adam. You see, I'll put enmity between them. He's talking about putting a gap in there. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and, and her seed. He'll bruise your head. You'll bruise his heel. But he's got a heel to, to bruise, you see, Right? He's got a heel to bruise. He's going to have a flesh and blood heel. It's already incarnation of her son. So, um, you know, once we're, once we're defiled, um, this is the second point under, under point three. So is this three, the second dot. Once you're defiled, once you're mangled, once you're deformed, you're unprotected. And you can no longer see God face to face. You can't have an immediate presence. You know, you can't. One of the great things about going to heaven is you're going to be able to see God face to face. You'd be this close, and it's all going to be okay. You can't do that now because it'll just, it'll scorch you. That's what, you know, transfiguration, whenever Jesus sort of lets that through, boom, it just throws people into a tizzy. Okay. So you can no longer have this immediate thing. He mediates himself. He uses a medium. He uses stuff. He uses flesh and blood because otherwise it would destroy us. And, you know, you um, see this in Hebrews 2.7, uh, where it talks about, and I've quoted it here for you, the Trinity's great grace in Hebrews 2.7 is, you know, for a little while Jesus was made lower than the angels and crowned with glory and honor. He still has his glory and honor, but he's lower than the angels. What does that mean? Your little brother to the angels, your little sister to the angels. Right? It's the Lord and the angels and you. And um, so he, he, he falls below her than the angels. He falls out of heaven. He falls to earth. And that's why, just so you know, I, I don't know if you know, but traditionally in the church, at the point in the creed where it was, and, and he was made man, the tr typical thing is to bow before that, and he was made man, which is to recognize that, his, that the glory of heaven has come among us. So you, would, you, would, you bow when you meet the queen, you know, you bow to meet the president. You go to Japan, you, go, you bow to meet almost anybody, especially the president of a company. And he was made man. It's typical. 
This is just one of those things Christians do, like making the sign of the cross. You just do it. I mean, people just do it. Sometimes I get lost and forget to do it, but it's okay. You do it anyway. And it was made man and was crucified for us. And then he talks about what, what happened while he was made man. But it's just a normal thing, okay? Now, here's the point, and this is one of the difficulties of beauty, which this was point number four. We live in this in-between time. Where we're, we're redeemed and yet mangled. We yearn for home, and yet we're not there. We know there was an Eden, but it's not, it's not with us yet, at, le- at least not fully. We touch Jesus at the supper, and yet the supper points to something else, to a feast where everybody is restored without end. Okay, there's beauty here, but it is incomplete. We live in this very difficult ambiguity where we yearn and yet have difficulty being satisfied, where we know and yet we don't know completely, where we see and yet we don't see everything. We live in a very, very difficult place. There is so much good in the world, and you know, you're all meant to be agents of that. But the, the world is a difficult place too. So, I, and, and what I'm going to do next is I want to try to pick this up. We live in this time of sin and grace, you know, of a promise kept, of course. He does send his son, but it's not yet fulfilled. We haven't seen the end of it. A time of difficulty and ambivalence, but also of possibility and hope. There's actually a hope that we all can live together in the way of Eden. You know, part of what you're trying to do in the church, and this is, I hope this has become clear. We've just banged on this so much, and I think it didn't resonate at first, but maybe it is now. Forgiveness is not the end game. Forgiveness is the beginning. You're forgiven into something, you know. You're forgiven to live. What, what you, the kindest thing that could be said of this place is it's a little Eden. The kindest thing you could say is this is where people are grateful for what the Lord gives. The kindest thing that could be said um, is this, this is the body of Christ, his community. You see, this is what we've done the last two or three years in here. It's all the same theme, just from a different angle. And part of picking it up again this year was that it's beautiful. I mean, it's a beautiful way to live in a very hostile world. There's so much good in the world. Rejoice in that. Um, But here's the thing, and this is the point for the day. Beauty is not always apparent um, at first glance. So actually, our life is ambiguous. We have this ambiguous life that's going to be forgiven. Um, And Jesus enters into this life, and yet even with Jesus there's ambiguity. In this sense, at least, the people see him and they don't recognize him. He does good and they call him evil. They take the son, of, the son of God and they kill him as the son of man. So it's this extraordinarily difficult thing. But if we can li- learn of that and, and, and live from that, and if we can extol the beauty, and if we can push down what is evil among us, if we can hold up what is good uh, and, and, and brush aside you know, all of ourselves you know, what is horrible, then life will be more beautiful here together. Now, I suspected that somebody at this point, and if you could open your Bible to Isaiah 53, um, that would be a nice thing. You remember that Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 61 are the things that get fulfilled when Jesus is baptized. He gets baptized, which is really his ordination. It's his ordination because the Lord puts him to the task So Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, right? Ezekiel, if you can find that. Isaiah 53. And um, I sort of say this because I presumed it would come up in one of the readings, and I presumed that one of you would would ask me about it. Okay, Isaiah 53. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? You see, have have you ever seen it? 
For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. And then here's the stick. For he had no form or comeliness that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Um, what I suspected, you, you know, what might be bothering you, which was, of course, a question for me way back when I began this, was, you know, what do I do with that term for beauty? So here, here's a possibility. You remember Noam, the Hebrew that we found in the Psalms, let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. That was the word for when God is incarnate, when he's present with us. Actually, a different word um, is used, uh, if you turn your page over, it's Hadar, in this 53. It's not the same word. And the beauty translation is not quite as helpful here. It's a related word and sometimes is a synonym. But it really means um, he doesn't give the appearance of being dignified. Or it's used for ornaments. You know, he doesn't have uh, chevrons on his sleeves. Or he's not majestic or not splendid. Uh, he doesn't have the trappings of external honor. He doesn't have a nice suit. Right? That's the word that's used here. And it's also then used for you know, people for outside the mainstream, which completely works with Jesus. He's a social misfit. He's an outcast. He's a rebel. And ultimately, he's executed. Okay? So, I, I just wanted to, uh, you're going to hear that text, and when it says there wasn't any beauty in him, I didn't want you to sort of freak out about all the stuff we've been doing. Okay? All right, now, um, you know, pastoral risk. <clears throat> um, I'm going to hand this out to you. Uh, but here's the first thing I want to say to you. I'm not trying to offend you. And if you're going to feel like you're going to be offended, don't look at it. Okay? Um, I know that sort of... I've been trying to all week to try to figure out how to say that to you. There's no way to say it. It's kind of like, don't think about monkeys. Okay, what are you thinking about? <laughs> I mean, I get it. Um, <clears throat> there is... Um, so now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of paint out for you where I am. I'm also going to count on the fact that you're a more mature audience, and I'm also going to... Um, Thank God that um, by quirk this was daylight savings time, so I only have half the people I normally have, okay? <laughs> so here's the thing. There's an old saying by the rabbis, um, God is never pictured from the waist down. And, um, you know, the implications of that are obvious. Um, since the fall, you know, nakedness is a shame. On the other hand, one of the places where we um, sell things short uh, in the in the crucifixion story, quite frankly, is the humiliation of Jesus as, as naked. I mean, they took away his clothes and they cast lots for him. Um, he hangs there naked, and part of, if any one of you, as much as you love everybody else in the room, if you were hung up naked in front of this group, you can imagine the psychological pain of that, and frankly, the shame of that. When the Babylonians marched, I've read when the Babylonians marched the Israelites into captivity. They marched them um, naked with only hooks through their noses to keep them. Um, and they were so debilitated by the nakedness that they sort of walked in a straight line to their captivity. I mean, there's a reason people went to, to um, the Holocaust naked. There's a reason for it. So here's the thing. I have this double thing where um, 
I, I'm cognizant of your sensibilities. And frankly, I showed this picture to about six people before I gave it to you, and the vote was split kind of three to three. Um, but I will say that each person I showed it to had sort of this um, visceral reaction to it. I mean, it's kind of physically uneasy. Okay, so my, my point is not to, I'm, I'm trying to tell you everything, because once I give it to you, I'm afraid you're not gonna be able to pay attention. So here's the thing, my point is this. My point is that Jesus entered a world full of sin, and we take that far too lightly. And in fact, um, what's meant by this picture, and the sole reason I wanna give it to you, is for you to have a full sense of the ambiguity of the life in which we live the world in which we live, that it is this very desperate battle between sin and grace, that actually um, there is an evil which is every bit as potent uh, in many instances um, um, as the grace which you know, you know, comes, to, comes to, 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 to dissolve it. So I'll tell you what, I'll hand these out. You guys can help me with this. I didn't do this in advance because I didn't want to lose your attention. Um, you know what, Mike, Mike, why don't you just hand them out face down. If you don't want to look at it, that's great. Can you do the other side? I just want you to pose. Now, I've probably said so much that, you know, this is irresistible to you. I wasn't trying to do that. And frankly, I'm just telling you, I'm just telling you because it's not, I mean, in, in one sense, it's not so, the, the nakedness is not the most horrific bit, Okay. And we talked a lot about this. We talked a lot about this on Friday, whether I should give this to you. And even the pastors kind of were back and forth about it. But I'm going to give it to you anyway because I want you to observe a couple of things in it. Okay? But he takes all your shame. So he has all your shame. So he fully... To fully have that is to be fully ashamed. Otherwise, he doesn't take your sin. And this is the thing. Is Jesus the holiest person that ever lived? Yes. Is he the greatest sinner that ever lived? Yes. And you have to hold those two things in tension. So I would say that he has all of our shame collectively, which is way more than any one of us could experience, okay? Kind of hold, just hold that in there. You're right. There's more to the story, Okay. Um, this is a 20th century bit called The Large Martyrdom by Lovis Corinth. All right, so once you, once you sort of recover from it, I just want to observe something, in, a couple of things in it. Or maybe I should, maybe I should ask you, um, I, I probably shouldn't speak first. I just sort of, okay, you know the crucifixion story, and you know what's trying to be represented here. By the way, don't leave these lying in the pew when you go, please. I mean, just the next people are coming, you don't want to hurt them. I mean, real honestly, if you just found this coming in, you were a visitor, that wouldn't be good for you. So um, just kind of what's, what's your reaction sort of to this? I mean, just kind of look at it if you can. I mean, just sort of your theological reaction to it. What's sort of your, what's going on in this picture? Anybody? Go ahead. Right, it's, right it's, it's, this is not our typical, and this kind of the sermon from this morning, it's not our typical understanding of Jesus as a glorified person. And yet, you're right, that's my, one of my reactions to it. Too. And yet we know that Jesus, and we can hardly understand this, he says his greatest glory is when he hangs on the cross. He, we don't react to this as glory. He tells us this is his greatest glory. It's just, it's almost, you just can't almost put those two things together. What else? Anybody else, please, yes? 
which would just kind of describe for me one of them or all of them. How do you say it? He said, what's troubling is the eagerness um, by which they want to crucify him. You want to say any more? You can let it lie there, too. Yeah. You just let it lie. It's okay. Yeah. Anybody else? Yes, please. Exactly. There is, a, there is a way that that guy, he could be, I mean, what else could he be watching? Big screen TV? He could. He could be looking at a big screen TV in a store window. I mean, he could be watching ships go by on the river. He is, he is, he looks at Jesus as if it's another day on the job. This is what I do. This is who I am. We've got to get this one done so we can get the next one done. He is utterly, he, he's dead to, to what happens just before him. I mean, and whatever you may have felt when you looked at that, he feels none of that. It is the most, the evil is so, when evil becomes trite, it is often the deepest kind of evil. When you can hurt people and kill them over and over and over again and not even notice. Or somebody kind of been back there. Yes, Jan. And I'll come. I will come back, Andrew. Right. Right. Exactly. Okay. So normally people. This is very insightful. Normally people are depicted as mocking him with sort of laughter. This is a different kind of mocking. You know, can you say why that is? Anybody can say why this is a different kind of mocking? Anybody? Well, they seem to be pleased with themselves. They, you know, pleased with kind of a job well done, you know. I, I look at the guy in the bottom, the two guys in the bottom right, okay. I just find this, I don't know which one I find more debilitating, these three guys. But the guy, I, I see the guy in the, with the hammer saying to the guy, man, hold this straight so I don't hit your finger, okay. I mean, really, there's just no sense of, you're driving this through the foot of the Son of God. There's just no sense of that. Just let me, let me go here and then I'll come. Okay, go ahead if it's on this, yeah. Yes, right. It is just the business of the world. Okay. Yes, thank you very much. Andrew, you were going to say? That's right. Um, she said there, he's a deta- there's a detachment in the man who views us as if he's viewing, uh, as if we were viewing it at an art gallery. It's very interesting because Pastor Nelson um, was so intrigued by this. He, he actually looked up the guy. He Googled the guy, this guy who painted this. And one of the interesting things is, is he painted this. One of the reviews is that he painted this as a self-portrait, which opens up all kinds of doors about what's going on here. But he was a man who felt like he'd been done in by the world and felt that the world was very detached from him, and it hurt him greatly, which in some sense you could all kind of say. Go ahead. Yeah. Jesus looked terrified in this picture. Yeah. I, when, when I think about seeing pictures of him on the cross, it's always this peaceful kind of... 
Yeah. You saw the in paradise with me. Exactly. He looks utterly scared. Yeah, the, it is. Yeah, she said he, he looks terrified, and he does. I mean, it is so. It's to the point where it's kind of it's sickening how terrified he is, and that you see then. The, the contrast between his face and the man with the mustache in the bottom left looking at him. I mean, there's utter terror on one hand and just sort of utter calm on the other, right? It's like there's just nothing going on here. This is just what we do. I mean, the guy who's reaching down with his right hand from below, it's sort of like he, he doesn't even look how close his face is to Jesus. I mean, that's how close you are. He's 18 inches from somebody who's dying. And he doesn't even notice. Okay. Yes, please. But that's people in the world don't notice. I mean, that's us before the Holy Spirit revealed to us it was. The the centurion at the cross at the end of it said, Truly this man was the son of God. That's they're doing their job. I mean I can't get down on them too hard because we're all sinners. We're all sinful. Very nicely said. Okay, so two things. One is um, they're doing their job, and if they don't do their job in this particular way, it will lead them up. Okay, now here's the thing. Uh, St. John Chrysostom said, um, when people become possessed by evil, they become animalistic. They become subhuman, which I would just like to suggest is true, which is what you said, but it doesn't reduce the horror of it. Anybody else? Because I want to just move with a couple things. Yeah. That's right. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Right. Yeah, you have very, it's very interesting. He's very stark and he's illumined, but the illumination actually shows you how, how, how beat up he is, right? Okay. They're not as, you know, I don't know. This is, uh, you know, how you see things. I think it's kind of, it's a very interesting observation. Jesus is lit but gaunt and hurt. They're um, shadowy but sort of full and fat and happy. They got regular day jobs, right? Yes, please. Yes, nice community. That's right. Good cooperation. Yes, a lot of teamwork. Oh, boy. That's brutal. Yeah, thank you very much. Yes, please, and then we'll go there. Go ahead. Uh, I looked at this, and I saw Abu Ghraib. You still what? Abu Ghraib. I saw torture. Yes, right. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, um, that was Bruce's point, too, which we can be reduced to this. Not so difficult to add. I don't know. It's very interesting. Yeah, the, she said, should, she, if you were walk by this, would you recognize it as a crucifixion? It's not normal, these sort of ropes hanging down. You've got sort of, um, you know, either medieval or 20th century fetters, right?
Thank you. You were going to say? Yeah, either one of you. Yes, right. All. The background seems all wrong, yes. Yes, that's right. And so this is, you know, and so what artists often do is, as he's done with the dress of the people, for example, these are obviously, you know, um, early 20th century workmen. They're dressed the way that, right? And we regularly see this. And what he's trying to do is say, of course, um, among other things, this is, yeah, this is our story. Yes, please. Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah, there's just, you know, this is, there's something, yeah, there's a way that artists work to sort of draw us into this. Yes, please. That's very interestingly, he said, you know, we, don't, we think Christ being voluntary, and he does, of course, give his life up, but that doesn't diminish the pain, and so he feels like he holds him in place, and look at his other leg, his other leg, almost involuntarily, this is how pain, you know, you pain, you bang your elbow, and, you know, that other leg is coming up, and, you know, often we see the two, the two feet nailed together, he's going to get it twice, you know, so there's just this increasing amount of, amount of difficulty and pain, go ahead. Yeah. 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 Um, that's very well said. That you know they they work together so much that they. Well, Jesus' great thing in Matthew twenty six, where he said, "You did it to them, you did it to me." which would give us all pause to think about what, what we did to them, right? So we can miss Jesus in our midst. Now, I, wanna, I just want to, because I want you to, oh my gosh, I'm after even. All right, I didn't, uh, you know, didn't want to stop you, but on the other hand, I don't want to leave you, because this is not where I want to leave you, okay? I want to take you to the next thing. Think about this. And I'm indebted to this um, from, by the way, thanks for, you know, among the kind things you let us do is go study. And so this brilliant set of lectures on evil and, and beauty last year that, that Pastor Gating and I were able to go to. Um, Carol Harrison is the best Augustine scholar in England uh, who gave a very interesting paper. I'm going to say two things very quickly, and I'm going to let you think about it for next week. Where she said, uh, Jesus is the blue note. And for you jazz folks, I'm not, but I've heard it. Um, the last note of Round Midnight, Miles Davis. You know, there's a note. A blue note is a note that's slightly off and so is offensive to your ear. But in being offensive to your ear, it makes you think about everything differently. And she gave this brilliant pe- paper about the crucifixion as the blue note. As, as, so, so here's the thing. I mean, here's the thing. Think of how you've described this in the last 20 minutes. And now ask yourself how Jesus can say this is the most glorious thing that ever happened. And how Christians can say this is the most beautiful thing in history. I give you, we'll come back to this, but on, just look at point number six. The cross is central to beauty. Hans Urs von Balthasar, great theologian of the last century, if he was the guy, if anybody knew about beauty. The crucifixion looks horrible until there's a hint of the divine. That's David Brown, Pastor Gaming's um, doctor father, uh, who knows more about this kind of stuff than anybody. The obedience on the cross is a form of beauty. Trevor Hardy's a professor at St. Andrews. And Christ's humiliation is his glorification. That's Bach, yeah? 
And it's also Jesus. Um, take a look at John 12, 28, and 32. He says, I'm going to get my glory, and my glory is going to be on the cross. Okay, so here's the thing. We live in this great ambiguity, and we see, we, we almost ignore the ambiguity because we just get busy with our lives. When we're busy with our lives, we destroy Jesus. However, if you can once again be able to see Jesus, the beauty of Jesus in the cross, then there's hope for us. There's hope for a different kind of life. And you can sort of draw that all out of that, that painting. Um, we got to go. Don't leave them in the pew because unexplained. This is, won't be helpful to people. You know, keep them um, as you keep them. If you want to bring them back for next week, we can talk about them. Thanks for being patient with me. Um, that was a little bit risky, and I'm still uncomfortable having done that. Um, however, uh, it's more accurate than we might know. So there you go, okay? Something to ponder here as we go towards Palm Sunday. Let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you.